He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life. What a day. It's Saturday, August 28, 2021. What a sad week. Last week's show, titled Afghan Regrets. I feared it could get worse, and it has with the loss of so many of our military. Our hearts go out to the Marines and the others. We have a Marine on our show. R. Scott Rice returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge to talk about the fascinating Murder, preliminary hearing of Barry Morphew in Salida, Colorado. Carol McKinley was in the courtroom, and she will be our special guest talking about the Barry Morphew matter. And I'm thinking a lot about murder. Some of them hit really close to home, like the one in Yeshiva Torres Chaim when young man, a rabbinical student, 18 or 19, Shmuel Silverberg, may he rest in peace, shot dead allegedly by a gang of five kids who pulled the trigger. What should happen to the others? These are concepts I've wrestled with. I did a lot of first-degree murder prosecution in the day, back in the day when I was a prosecutor. And you think about the concept of life being over in the blink of an eye, literally. Somebody pulls the trigger or pushes a button on a bomb, and your world is over. And in that moment of explosion, do you think, I wonder if this is happening to everybody. Maybe this is the big one, the nuclear blast. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. The Taliban gets support from Pakistan. We've got quite a dangerous situation, but let's keep it local. Let's talk about something I know more about, Colorado murder trials. This Barry Morphew case has it all. And it's okay to care about it because when somebody like Shmuel is killed or Suzanne, think about Shmuel. He might have had eight or nine kids. One of them may have cured cancer for all we know. When you kill one person, you destroy the whole world in a way. And you can't do that. Suzanne Morphew was murdered, I do believe, although... Some will argue that's still at issue since her body has not been found. I think Barry Morphew knows what happened to her. But can the prosecution prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? That's what we're doing today, along with the help of our troubadour, Dave Gunders. What a song he has this week, A Sun Still Shining. Again, perfect for what's going on in the world You have to hear it. I don't know how he keeps doing it, but his wordsmith, his lyricism, his musicality, it all comes together and his sun still is shining. So enjoy our episode 59, titled Barry Morphew. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 
303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks. What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? Slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review push the podcast to your friends let them listen thank you this is a nice welcome back to one of our best guests ever we learned all about carol mckinley and she was the captain of the track team at cu she went on to fabulous jobs in radio and television and media. She remains so employed. And for ABC News, she's been covering the Barry Morphew preliminary hearing in Salida, Colorado. Carol, welcome back to the show. Hey, Craig. Good to, good to hear you. How do you like Chafee County? And am I pronouncing it right, Chafee? Yeah, it's Chafee. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's great. Salida is beautiful. And um, there are trails everywhere. And, you know, there's the big thing there is, is fly fishing and hiking, you know, not so much skiing, but fly fishing and hiking and there's streams. And uh, it's, it's a great, a great place to be able to go. If you're going to have to cover something awful, like the Morphew case, you know, with Suzanne's disappearance and possibly murder. So um, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty, and you know, it's funny though, because all these mountain towns, they're, um, people are moving there and the, and the prices of housing is going up. It's it's hard to um, it's hard to find a, a house that you can afford down there now. At least me. No, I know it. Real estate is popping all over Colorado, Northern Colorado. I was up there playing golf the other day, and it's booming in Windsor, Berthoud, etc. It's all over Colorado. But let's focus on Chafee County. Do you know? Yeah. How Chafee County got its name? Nope. How did it get its name? The very first senator from Colorado was a guy named Jerome B. Chafee, who was big time involved in building a little city called Denver, Colorado, headed up First National Bank. And then he got sick not that long after 1876, was out by 79. But his daughter, Fanny, 
married the son of Ulysses S. Grant. Wow, that's interesting. Isn't that something? Yeah. Wasn't Grant the president? He was only president for like eight months, wasn't he? No, Grant served eight years. He served Who two was the terms. one who was eight and he, months? He was the guy who allowed Colorado into the union, too. And Chafee was a Republican, and Colorado was kept out in 1867 by Andrew Johnson, who said, you need to certify that you'll let blacks vote, and Colorado would not do that. But then Jerome B. Chafee came along. He was a Republican like Abe Lincoln, like Ulysses S. Grant. And he said, yeah, we'll make that certification. We'll allow black people to vote. And that led to us being a state. That's interesting. I think And so. was it, um, tell me the year we became a state? 1876. Okay. I remember um, I came to Colorado in 1977, and they had just had their big centennial celebrations right. and everything. Yeah. Enough about right. Colorado. Well, Let's talk all. about you, because I follow you on Twitter. If you want to follow the Barry Morphew case, you got to follow Carol A. McKinley on Twitter. She's in the courtroom, but let's go to your Twitter handle first. Kids are uh, it's grown. At Carol A. McKinley, yeah. Kids are grown. Oh. That's a good thing. Oats are sown. That's clever. And it rhymes. Opinions my own. I love that. Then ABC <laughs> News. But you also talk about being a Baghdad alum. What does that mean? Well, it just means I was, uh, when I was with Fox News Channel, I was the uh, one of the correspondents out here in the West. And I, would, I did that for 10 years, and part of that time, um, I got war duty, which was really, really interesting. So I was in Baghdad in 2004, right when the Saddam Hussein's uh, his statue fell right in front of our hotel, and that was uh, amazing. The What was the name of that hotel? The Sheraton. It was called the Sheraton, but it was bombed out, so... Um, it wasn't really the Sheraton like what you think, like there was no water. When a Sheraton and, um, gets bombed out like, like that. that, do you keep your hotel points? I think oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. No, but you, know, you, you must know. have it was kind of funny you must though, have I don't know special, how the bill. You must have special perspective on what's going on this week. I, I, I well, don't know. Uh, you know, we, we I have a really good friend who's who's Afghan and she is a salesperson for KOA Radio because that's where I started was KOA and we met there. She's Afghan. And um I think I'm going to try to get in on this cuz her her brother is try it works for USAID and they're and they're trying to get Afghan refugees over here in Colorado. She's working real hard to do that. It's, uh, yeah, she's, it, uh, it, it's her, tragic. It's unbelievable what's it's going so on sad. over there. And I'll tie it into more of you in yeah. this way. Okay. 13 military guys essentially got murdered along with scores of Afghanis yesterday at the Abbey Gate at the Karzai Airport. And it's shocking and it's terrible and it rips our heart out because death does that, unnatural death. It's just something that Above all, we need to avoid as human beings. That's the first priority. We we can't have killings of people. And yet it keeps happening, and it happened, according to the prosecution, in Chafee County to poor Suzanne Morphew. Is there any doubt that she's dead, or is that still a question? 
Well, the prosecutors are adamant that she's dead. In fact, when they did their first press conference after Barry Morphew was arrested, I think that might have been like May 5th or 6th that they did that press conference. He he was arrested, I believe, the 5th, and then they did a press conference the next morning. And, are we talking? And uh, the sheriff down there, John Speezy, said, we believe Suzanne is no longer alive. So, I mean, they, they believe he's dead, but the defense is is pretty convinced she ran away, was killed by a mountain lion, maybe kidnapped, but that she's still alive. Tell us, tell us about the charges. Barry Morphew got arrested. Now, let's back up. Tell us about the Morphews. Who are they? Uh, to outward appearances, successful well, couple in Chapin yeah, County. Beautiful couple, right? Beautiful people, both really good looking people. And that goes back to, um, we were in Indiana where they grew up and kind of looked around and talked to people. Barry Morphew was a baseball star in, um, in Alexandria, Indiana. And he, you know, like if you go to the baseball field, his name's still up there. 1986 hall of fame for the state. I forgot which, which position he played. He might've been a shortstop, you know, an infielder. So he was, you know, the handsome guy. He drove the good car and all he could have had any anybody, you know, he could have gone out with anybody he wanted to. And I think Suzanne was a year or two younger. She lived on the golf course where he worked in the summers. They were at like number one Fairview Lane or something. I mean, they were the first house on the golf course. Her dad owned the root beer stand in town, the hot hot dog hot dogs and root beer. Jean's root beer was the name of the place. And that's something, I mean, so Americana. And, um, so he, he tended the grounds in the summer and that's how they met, you know, like on the, one of the teas, that's where they spent their time getting to know each other and talking through the night. Right. So it's one of those storybook romances where, you know, they met young, I think she was 17 and, um, they never, you know, they never strayed from each other that we know of. Until, you know, until later, but... Um, Let's stay with happier times. Did they have children? Times. Two girls and two beautiful daughters, Mallory and Macy. Mallory uh, just graduated from college and Macy just graduated from high school. So that's, that's you know, I think, I, I think um, Macy might have just turned 18, but Mallory's 21 or 22. Uh, they had these beautiful daughters. There were four kids in the Mor- Mormon family, which is Suzanne's maiden name, Mormon. Two boys, two girls. Were they Mormon? I don't know. I don't think so. It's M-O-O-R-M-A-N. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, so they got married, and I've got pictures of them, you know, from the newspapers when they got married. Beautiful. She had, like, the big 80s hair, you know, like, and, and you know, he had that kind of, yeah, she she just was um, really quiet, you know, and real sweet, but beautiful. And he was, um, he was the star baseball player. I, th- I think they both graduated from Purdue. She started. Uh, as a teacher for a little while and then when she had her kids she stayed home so she was a mom most of the time they were married and then what and brought them to Colorado stuff like that you know um they they only lived here for about two years and I think I th- there's kind of different 
thoughts on why they came here. They needed a change of scenery. Could have been um, the marriage needed a change. They, I don't think they were doing so well in Indiana as far as getting along. And um, he wanted to start start new. She wanted to start new. They sold their business and sold their nice house out there. Left, came here and bought the uh, the really nice house they lived in in um, May Maysville, Colorado, which is right outside of. Salida, beautiful. I, I drove by it. It's really pretty. And really one of those beautiful homes. Um, it's Maysville. I know, but is Pontchart Springs one of the suburbs of Salida as well? It keeps coming up. Yeah, yeah. Pontchart Springs is out there too. And uh, some of his jobs were in Pontchart Springs, so that that comes up a lot. But they're all, you know, you they're all within miles of each other. So yeah, they were out here. They started new. They got a new church. They're very religious. Um, I forgot the name of the church, Faith something. What do you but, mean uh, by went, very religious? I, explain how that came out. Um, they just, they, 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 they uh, especially Barry, and that came out in court this week, you know, really uh, is a, I guess he would probably call himself a God-fearing man. You know, he, he a lot of his language has to do with God. But they, you know, they just were very, you know, very religious. They, they, God, the idea of God in that world and heaven and all that was a big part of their lives. So on the surface, they were pretty, went to church in Indiana and they continued here. On the surface, they appeared to be a nice, uh, church going family of four living in just outside Salida in Maysville. And then everything came apart, what was it, the Mother's Day before last when Suzanne disappears? Yeah, that would be Mother's Day 2020. She um, she was reported disappeared on Mother's Day 2020. That would have been May 10th that year. She wasn't reported missing until about 5 in the afternoon. And Barry Morphew was in Broomfield at the time on a job. He's a landscaper. He has his own company. And his job, the job he went up to Broomfield to do was to, to rebuild a big wall up there that um, his client had asked him, had said there was some trouble. And so he, he was going to rebuild it. And he had a couple of employees who were going to help him. Uh, that was not going to be done until the 11th, that Monday. So the question is, why did he leave Sunday morning at 4.35 in the morning to go to this job in Broomfield when he didn't have a permit to work on a Sunday. Right. So right. It, it was, it, it was not permitted to work on a Sunday on this job, but yet he, he left really early on Sunday morning. Why? And why would he leave on mother's day? Um, so, you know, in court, we saw a lot of things about what he did that day. You know, a lot of it was a timeline on what Barry Morphew did that Sunday. And we the created, of we created well. by his words, the data from his truck, the data from his phone, et cetera. Yeah, um, it's pretty amazing. There's there's this data, uh, this, this thing called Burla you've probably heard of. But when some of the newer cars, you can track exactly what the cars are doing, which I never knew. Like when doors open, it records that. When When lights go on, either headlights or inside lights go on, it records that. But as the defense pointed out, it's it's not always accurate. Like like we knew he was on the road at times, you know, and opening doors at 
at some, you know, in, on other days where it didn't record it. So there's a little bit of doubt on every time the door opened, every time the lights went on, but but there are recordings that lights were going on and doors were being opened at strange times. Of All course, right, you so, don't know so, who's opening the door. Right. You know the truck door's opening. You don't know who's doing it, but you do know the exact time. You know that the headlights go on and you know the thing goes in in park. It goes in reverse. All that stuff. You, it's it's recorded. It's amazing. This is remarkable, absolutely. But she uh, allegedly goes missing on Mother's Day. Well, she did go missing, and then uh, he has left Sunday morning early. Where does he spend Sunday night? Sunday night, you know, I don't know where he spent Sunday night because they uh, he had to leave the house that night. I don't know. I, I think they. I'm I'm only speculating, but I I think they had another condominium or something. I don't know. He did end up going to that place once they sold the house, and I think that's in Poncha Springs. No, I, no, but, I, I, you you might have. I, I'm just trying to establish. He left Sunday morning of Mother's Day. He left. That's yeah. odd mm-hmm. in the wee hours. Then he doesn't mm-hmm. have a job until Monday in Broomfield, right? Mm-hmm. But he but he goes to Broomfield for that job early Sunday, like very early Sunday right. morning. Right, and, and he spends the night at a hotel or. Where we don't know it? where he was Sunday night. Okay. I don't know where he was Sunday night, but the police had that house for, for days, more than a week, maybe 10 days from Sunday night on. Doing and there's a big clue right away because she's a bike rider and her bicycle is found in an unusual location. Am I right? Yeah, it's, it's not so much that the location's unusual as that there was no damage to the bike. It was thrown over the side, the side of like a, a road, pretty close to their house. It was County County Road, two twenty five and Highway fifty. The bike was found, and the front, uh, the front of the bike was all twisted up, so all the brakes were all twisted because of the way it tumbled. But there wasn't damage on the bike, as if she'd been on it and slid on rocks and stuff like that. And there was no blood found near the bike. And we saw body cam video of the cops take, you know, finding the bike and and going, oh my gosh, look at this, you know, look at these handlebars, you know. And you can hear them say, that "There's an emotional husband." You can hear that over the the uh, like the walkie-talkie dispatch thing, and they're they're uh, bringing the bike up, you know, up the up the hill, and it's right. very 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 steep. If I read it correctly, the first time he talks to the cops about Suzanne, he tells them, hey, she's a daily bike rider. Yeah, and and, uh, one strange thing that came out is that he, um, when the neighbors called him to let let him know that Suzanne was missing, and that happened in the 5 p.m. hour, I want to say 5.45 or so, he said, check the garage and see if her bike's there. Without them saying anything about a bike, mm-hmm. so that's that's raised some suspicion. Why would he immediately go to the bike? Well, I mean, on the other hand, maybe he knew she was going to go on a bike ride, and maybe he figured that maybe she might have just been out for a while. And um, this was May; there was still a little bit of daylight left at five o'clock. But um, the the neighbors went over, and sure enough, her bike was gone, but her car was there, her Range Rover. And 
then they called the cops and the, well, not the cops, the sheriffs, sheriffs came out not too long after. And that's when everything started. Uh, the, um, one of the girl's boyfriend was home and we saw the body cam video of that interview. They, they came to the house, the boyfriend comes out and he says that the couple's been having some problems lately. Like they, they do argue, you know? And he said that that was a weird place to find the bike. She didn't drive that way. She didn't, she didn't ride that way. You know, she, she stayed on the roads and she usually rode in the morning, not in the afternoon. So that is all recorded. And we're all hearing this kid kind of trying to figure this out, you know, and that's a very, you know, those very, you know, as you know, Craig, those very first seconds and minutes are the, are, are the most important because that's, that's when people have their first reactions before Definitely. anybody has a chance and, and, to and, and do they track, stuff up. Are, are there neighborhood cameras that record Barry coming and going or their own cameras set up? And if so, did they look to see when she took her bike out? Because that could have been captured on video. No, they uh, they didn't have cameras on at all. There was a DVR that had been shut down. Shut um, down I'm when? A home security it, 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 DVR? Nobody knows when, but the home security was shut down. Someone had pulled the, the wires. They were off. It was off. And they found DNA on the wires, and it was Suzanne's DNA. And I think, uh, so we don't know who, who shut that off or why, but there wasn't any home surveillance, no ring doorbell, no nothing. This house is, is, does not have homes nearby. It sits on its own. But apparently there was like a, there was a, um, a camera to watch for turkeys and, and um, wildlife that was not on either. So the two, right. the two places that might have had a had a camera and cat caught someone walking around. The only camera, let's put it this way, was police body cam. All right, I'm going to go through your tweets because you record it nicely and in real time. Mm. You you okay. record that the last time. When was the last time that we know Suzanne was alive? Well, you're going to put me on the spot here. I'm going to say 247. Is that the last? Is I that the last had, proof of life? Her, photo? The last ping on her phone was 4:23 a.m. on 5:10. Was her? Well, phone... that doesn't mean she's alive. That doesn't mean right. she's alive. Was her phone ever found? The... No, her phone pinged at 4:23 on Sunday morning. But we don't know if that was anomaly. Maybe maybe it was going out. Nobody knows why it. Pinged, but 423 was the last time we heard from the phone. The last proof of what they call proof of life photo is one she sent to her her lover, and that was in the two o'clock hour. Um, I want to say 204, something like that. But anyway, it was the two o'clock hour on Saturday is the last time we know she was alive. It was a picture of her in a bikini that she sent to her lover because she was out sunning herself before Barry got home that day. He pulled up at 2.44. She had already sent that picture like 30 minutes before. Wow. So we know she was alive just after 2 o'clock on Saturday. And um, we know Barry didn't send that because we know people do manipulate cell phones because so apparently he didn't know about the boyfriend. So she would have been the only one who knew about it. Um, well, that, uh 
That's that what the defense number. would have you believe, that he didn't know about it. Wouldn't the prosecution say that he discovered it? And let's talk about the boyfriend because she talked but about But we don't Barry. know if he knew about the boyfriend. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, I think the prosecution suspects he might have known about the boyfriend, but he didn't even drive up according to the, to the, you know, the car GPS until 244. And that picture was sent at right after two. All right. Let's talk about the boyfriend because he's a new figure. His name is... Jeff, Jeff Liebler, L-I-B-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he was on the golf team. So while Barry was tending to the golf course and romancing Suzanne, there was Liebler on the high school golf team, made varsity mm-hmm. as a freshman, and somehow he married a woman. They have six kids, and he's carrying on an affair with Suzanne Morphew. Is that true? Is that acknowledged? Do both sides yeah, stipulate it's, it's... to that? Well, we haven't talked to Libler, but um, yeah, I mean, the defense hammered hard on the affair for sure. Um, they hammered hard on secrets that Suzanne kept a lot. Iris Aton, who's one of Barry's attorneys, it's Drew Nielsen and Iris Aton. Iris said a lot. She brought up secrets Suzanne had. She had bought a spy pin supposedly to ca- either catch Barry in a rage or to catch him in an affair himself. She had a spy pin. Who buys a spy pin? But you know, her no, friend, no. She, did they have the spy pen in evidence? Uh, yes, they have it. Does they it look it in like a ballpoint pen, and you click it down, and it starts recording? I I have never seen one. <laughs> I mean, I've seen one a picture of one, but I've never used one before. Uh, but yeah, I imagine you don't realize that people are recording you, and the pen's just clicking away. You know, um, and the pen. You know, the pen got a lot of recordings. We didn't get to hear him really in, in court, but it got recordings between her and her best friend when they were at this, you know, they went, she went to Florida to see her friend and they watched the Super Bowl together and that, that pen is worrying away. And then the pen also caught Barry in the, in his truck, listening to um, podcasts about uh, murders. He was a, you know, he loved listening to, to, um, to murder cases, kind of like 2020 cases and stuff like that. And so it caught, it caught him listening to a murder about a woman who disappeared on a bike. That's, that's caught wow. on the spy pen. I mean, there's all kinds of little things caught on that spy pen that, that they have and they didn't play for us. We, we just, um, you know, heard about conversations and, and about some of this stuff through testimony. All right. Now, you need to clean clean up the timeline for me because I am confused. When did Barry Morphew find out about the affair? I thought he found out about it, and that was a big bone of contention. But are you telling me he didn't find out about it until well after she disappeared, at least as far as we know? No, no. The prosecution believes he found out about it because he caught her sending pictures to her boyfriend on Saturday when he got home. Right. In a bikini. Yeah. In a bikini. And they think, they think he walked up on her. They think she had AirPod, those, you know, earphones on. She didn't hear him. And he's, he caught her sending pictures. Well, the question is the last picture was sent right after two. He didn't get home till two forty four. So, did he grab the phone from her and just go get into it and see it? And then in a rage killer, or was this premeditated and he knew about the affair before the affair before and he, he couldn't stand to have her 
leave him, especially for another man. And so this was planned. I mean, that's that's all really still up in the air and still being you know, argued in court. I read where the daughters learned from uh, Mr. Morphew that mom was having an affair with Jeff Liebler and that it was a tearful conversation. Was there testimony about that? Yeah, he he decided he he needed to tell them, but it happened after she was gone. How long after you know, he, she was gone told, did he tell his daughter? I, I don't remember. I don't remember. Because, I because you have a tweet months. that says the infidelity was undiscovered for the first six months that Suzanne Morphew was missing. Yeah, then it must have been after it was discovered. I think that's all up in well. The police didn't discover it for six months. Right, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. That until if, November. Right, but if a couple months after mom went missing, Barry Morphew says, "Girls, I have to tell you that your that's mom was." That's a great point. And, and because point. if he told them earlier, then why didn't the daughters bring it up to law enforcement? Hey, we've got a new lead for you. My dad says yeah, mom but, was having. But I don't know when he told them. I don't. I don't remember. When he told him, if I didn't write that down in my tweets, and I don't, I didn't write that down in my notes. I don't remember when he told him about the affair. It might have been after the police let him know about it, because the police sat him down and let him know about the affair. And when and when they did, he said, "I I love her anyway. I I love her so much. You know that. You know, he right. brought God into to the conversation a lot, and he would say, God, you know." God, for you know, I forgive her and all that stuff. You know, they, I think they sat him down in January of 2021 to let him know about the affair. And it took so him the by question surprise. Is, did he already know about it? Well, he, he seemed to, you know, he seemed to, and he, we don't know. I mean, we, we only are listening to testimony. We haven't seen the moment that he found out. Wow. You know, um, let's talk about who's in the courtroom. It's gone on for four days. Okay. That's extraordinary for a preliminary hearing. But because he's charged with first degree murder after deliberation, good luck with that. He gets a hearing on proof, evident presumption. Great. That means that uh, the prosecution, if they want to keep him in jail without bond, they have to show the judge they have a really strong case. And the judge has taken it under advisement after four days, which is remarkable. If you have trouble deciding probable cause, how are you ever going to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure what the judge is having trouble with or if he's having trouble. What he told us in the courtroom, what he told the attorneys is, I've got 25 pages of notes and 20 hours to listen to, and I'm I'm going to do this right. I'm not going to make a quick decision. That's what he told them. And I'll tell you, both sides were disappointed. They both wanted an answer that day. And he said, September 17th, I'll give you your answer, but he's not going to be hurried. He wants to do it right. But you're right. I mean, when you do a preliminary hearing, how many times have you seen a judge take three weeks to make a decision on um very both, rare. Both bound, binding for trial and, and whether there's gonna he's going to let him out on bail. What was the courtroom scene like? How many but people I'm were there? You, how, is that unusual to take that amount of time? Oh, my after God. A, it's it's extraordinarily hearing? unusual. Huh. Usually they, they take a couple days. Normally That's judges right. rule from the bench and they say, uh, I find there's sufficient probable cause. Your next appearance, sir, will be this date. 
and you'll be asked to enter a plea unless you want to do it right now because Patrick Murphy is the judge. He's a district court judge. I imagine he'd be the trial court. It's all pretty fascinating, but the gallery in the courtroom, is it packed on a daily basis? You know, it has been. For these two days, it was more. There were more people. There are about two dozen seats in there. I would say maybe 24, 25 seats. So it's very small. JT County is very small. And so the people who have first dibs are the family. And Barry's family has been in force. They take up an entire row. It's his daughters, their daughter's friend who was with them when their mom went missing. The boyfriend? Um, I believe there's there's a boyfriend in there. The, the one you, um, the, the one you mother, referenced previously who gave that statement about Morpheus are fighting a lot? And this is not the way she normally oh, no, rode that a guy, bike? He's not in there. They're broken up. No, he, they're broken up. He's, he's not been in the courtroom. Right, but he would be a witness. And I would think the daughters might be witnesses. That's why I'm curious why they're not sequestered. Now, the judge may say, look, it's your mom who's the victim. It's your dad on trial. Yeah. I'm going to let you stay yeah. regardless. But if I was the yeah. prosecution, I think I would have said, Your Honor, these daughters may be witnesses and they should be sequestered. Huh. Even for a prelim, huh? Right. On, yeah, on I don't know. That, I mean, I, they, I don't if, know why they didn't do that. Uh, maybe they didn't want to be bad guy, look like bad guys, and they wanted the daughters to be able to be there for their for the Mormon side. I don't that, know. Well, but they they may not have as much evidence. I don't know. Maybe an agreement was made, but to me, the fact that the two daughters are standing by their father. That's mm-hmm. a big deal, not just for the judge deciding probable cause, but if that continues mm-hmm. through the jury trial, the average juror will say, look, there's a lot against him, but if the daughters who love their mama believe in their yeah. dad, who am I to go otherwise? Well, but I mean, we don't know because they haven't done any interviews. It could be that they're just so torn. I can't imagine being that young and having your mom be gone. But having your dad be gone too because he's behind bars and I right. Just, but you saw the interaction. Imagine. But you saw the interaction between daughters and father in the courtroom. Tell yeah, everybody what you saw. Oh, it's 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 ongoing. You know, every time there, I'll tell you, it has slowed down a little bit. But the, there were four days of preliminary hearing. The first two days, you could count on Barry Morphew turning around, putting his mask down, and mouthing, "I love you. I miss you." to the girls, you know, he, so they were communicating and how did with, they react? by mouthing things. And I remember the, and the daughters react, they pull their masks down and smile and they say the same thing. I saw one daughter, when she walked in, she showed him that her hair's grown long. Like she turned around and she pointed to her hair, you know, um, little things like that, little everyday life things that really just, you know, you, you're just like, wow, that's really interesting. But, um, but the second round of, hearings, which was two weeks later, they, I think they put the hammer down on Morphew, um, you know, mouthing things. And so now he has to keep his mask on and he does it with his eyes. He turns around and he, you can see his eyes crinkle, you know, like he smiles at him and he just stares at him. Like he longs for them. He stands there with his, with his hands folded in front of him. And you can just see the longing in his eyes that he wishes he could hug him, you know? And they do it back. You know, they, they're they still pulling their masks down and smiling. They'll do it for a second or two. And there's been a lot of sobbing. You know, there's been, a, you know, with the, um, when they were talking about Suzanne and 
And, um, you know, the youngest one's name is Macy, and she's the one who lived with them the two years in Colorado. The older one was in college. So she saw a lot of this stuff. And according to testimony, she told her, she told Suzanne, according to testimony, and according to conversations Suzanne was having with her best friend, Macy was telling her to get a restraining order and to leave without telling Barry, stuff like that. So Macy's torn and she is sobbing in there. I mean, to hear your name like that, you know, I. And again, I would think I, she's I just a witness. Can't imagine. She's a witness, and I'm surprised she was allowed to sit in. The, yeah. the theory being that if you hear yeah. other evidence, you will tailor your own to correspond. You want to keep a pristine process going, but that's tough. Now, there's Jeff well, Liebler. You know, and it's 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 got to be tough for the job though, for the for the judge though. And before you go into liberal, let me just tell you this story that happened inside. Macy was sobbing so much, and her friend was holding her. Right. Mm-hmm. The judge had to stop testimony, close the courtroom, and say, "Look, you've got to keep your mask on." And they looked up and they put their masks back over their noses, you know, and it was like, oh, my God, what a hard thing to do to, to tell a daughter who's sobbing about this trauma, this tragedy. Hey, you know, got to be safe still, kids. You know what I mean? Right. It was tough. Gosh, hard I, didn't to know. I didn't know about anyway, the daughter talking about a protection order. Wasn't there some evidence of possible domestic violence in the house, a damaged door of some kind to the master suite? Um, there was one, there was one, yeah, the door frame had um, one of the sheriff's deputies who really sparred with Iris Aton. He, 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 he kept it, stood his ground with her. You know, like she'd say, did he touch the handlebars? Yes, ma'am, he did. Well, I don't see he touched the handlebars. Let's play that video again. I'm seeing him touching the handlebars, ma'am. He touched the handlebar, you know, stuff like that. Right. But anyway, he's the one who testified the door frame had, had marks on it as if someone had tried to barge into the door. And and when he when they interviewed the people who'd owned the home before the Morphews moved in, they said that door never had those marks. So that door got you know, was damaged during the time the Morphews lived there. It's the master bedroom door. Now there's allegation of a bunch of destroyed stuff. Like Barry Moore, if you tried to delete some texts, which I gather the cops recreated. Yeah. yeah, there was a text on May 6th that the prosecution thinks was like the big, uh, is a huge text in their relationship. It, it was May 6th. Remember, keep in mind, she was last heard from on the 9th. May 6th in the morning, she wrote him a text, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like, I'm done. We need to figure this out civilly. That was sent in the morning, in the nine o'clock hour, and um, he swiped left on that. Like, but they were able to retrieve it. Like he 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 got rid of it right. on his phone, but they were able to retrieve it. And then that night, about five, that, that early afternoon evening, about five or so, he texted her and said, "I, you know, um, kind of gave that suicide text where he said that he would." Um, Oh, I don't remember what exactly it said, but we, we're calling it the suicide text because he right. kind of acted like, I, I don't want to live anymore. Right. You know, right? Um, and so... He sent that, was that to Suzanne and long. then erased it? 
Um, I don't think he erased it. I don't. I don't remember that. He erased hers. He erased hers where she put her foot down. She said, "It's over. Hmm. I'm leaving you." And so the prosecution believes this is a domestic violence. This is really a case of domestic violence, where she was going to leave, and and he 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 couldn't live with that, with her alive with that. And you know, um, I think there's been some conversation about whether this was premeditated or whether it was crime of passion. But obviously, they decided on premeditated. Haven't they uh, also recovered from Suzanne Morphew's data that she communicated to some friends that it was over between her and Barry? Yeah, yeah. She th- This one friend named Sheila Oliver, who was her Purdue friend, is going to be key. Because she she told Suzanne everything. She never told anybody about the affair, though, interestingly. She, she never told anybody about the affair, but she told... She confided in Sheila quite a bit, and um, a lot of the a lot of the texts that she had with Sheila, Drew Nielsen objected to because they were about Macy and and what Macy was saying to her about you should leave. And Drew said, "How do we know that Suzanne lied a lot? She lied to Sheila a lot, you know. So this Absolutely. didn't come from Macy; it came from Macy to Suzanne to Sheila." I mean, it was Suzanne's story about her daughter telling Sheila. So, that, I mean, you know, they're great. These two lawyers are fantastic. They throw up stuff. You know, uh, we'll get the, to them, but I, I just want to go over some of the most serious evidence. Suzanne okay. Morphew kept a journal every night, right? By her bed, she would write in it. She kept a Bible and an Al-Anon book. Do I have all that right? And yeah, of those three items, one of them was it, missing. Yeah, it was. they had a sitting room next to their or like like adjoined with their bedroom and and there was a, a chair with a lamp where she kept an al anon book which was for her dad you know her dad was an alcoholic and she had just reconciled with him and so she had an al anon book there and she had a bible and she had that's where she kept her journal and the journal was missing well the the sheriffs found the journal, not the journal, but they they imply they found the journal in the fireplace. They found evidence that there something was burned in there that had like a binder. You could see a binder, and they didn't have any pages with words, but something had burned in there that they found. And the implication is that the journal was burned. There were a bunch of other clues, and uh, I encourage people to go on Twitter to read about it, but. Did Barry Morphew turn his phone into airplane mode for a while for some reason? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say he turned it in airplane mode. There are different times he put it in airplane mode. I want to say between 10 and 4 in the morning, Saturday night, the 9th into the 10th on Sunday, it was in airplane mode. There were some other distinct times he had it in airplane mode. And what airplane mode means is you can't track it. And he said he didn't know that and that it's the first thing you see when you go into your phone. And so it, he put it in to airplane mode accidentally. What? He told cops when they asked him about that, that, it, that he put it into airplane mode accidentally because it's the first thing you see when you go into settings. Airplane mode is the very that. top. Yeah. And the only time you ever look at it is when you're on an airplane. Or maybe I should put it on right now doing this interview. But <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, bottom, you're supposed it, to, right? It, it, 
Okay, that's a possibility, Barry, but what are the odds? What are the odds that you turned it that way on this particular day? And that's the story of Barry Morphew. When you look at a lot of the moves he made and the strange trips his truck took, okay, maybe he was looking for a herd of elk at 3 in the morning, but what are the odds of a person doing that? And when you put all of these together... What yeah, are the odds the of this happening? What are the odds of yeah. her journal ending up here? What are the odds that she had just sent this bikini text to her boyfriend, this and that? And that's yeah, a circumstantial case against Barry Morphew. But again, if it's not convincing to the daughters and you're seeing no breakdown in their support of the father, at least that you can observe in that courtroom full of masks, I just find that fascinating. I, I wish I was in the courtroom, but you were... And tell us about the attorneys, because I know Drew and Iris, and they're really in their prime, and they've got a very solid criminal law-oriented practice. Tell us about these two women who will become famous when they're on ABC when this case goes to trial, because I do think it will go to trial. I, I do think he'll be I, bound over for so. trial. I, I hope it goes to trial. I'd like to see it played out. I, I'd really like to see it played out. But um, I mean, we, we sh- they should be famous already because I mean, Drew Nielsen represented Crystal Kinney in the Kelsey Barrett murder. If you right. remember, and that was Crystal, the Crystal nurse Kinney who helped nurse uh, her lover cover up the crime up of the killing crime Kelsey Barrett. But yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't take great lawyering Tom, to, to do that. But go ahead. They also represented Tom Fallis up in Greeley, and Tom Fallis was a, sher- a Weld County Sheriff's deputy accused of murdering his wife. And um, the wife died on her on her knees with a gun to her head, right? And and um, Drew Nielsen and Iris Aton, um, he was acquitted of, on blood spatter evidence. You know they 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 prove to the jury that she killed herself, that he didn't hold the gun, right? So that was the first time I ever saw him in action. Do you know what circumstantial evidence uh, you just provided, that you are a veteran criminal justice reporter because you call it blood spatter instead of blood splatter, which a lot of people make that mistake. Oh. You are educated. <laughs> That's funny. Blood splatter. That's right. Yeah, I'd yeah, say so, nine so, out of ten Yeah, they've people. been around. I mean, look. What Drew Nielsen pulled off with Crystal Kinney was nothing short of amazing because she was basically an accessory. And she spent, she, she left jail not too long ago. She was supposed to serve three years and she left, she, she's out. She's back up in Idaho, um, living her life. And, you know, it's, it's not easy after, after having her name thrown around being involved with a murder but um she was uh, it was a plea deal and she she's the person who caught patrick crazy because she knew everything <laughs> you know she she knew everything right. but so I, drew that, helped the prosecution and the prosecution cut her client a break although they kind of backtracked and, then and the judge cut. said yeah. no not so fast yeah the judge was pretty mad the judge was pretty mad and uh, dan may had the famous line where he said i made a deal with the devil talking about crystal kinney Hmm. Um, but you know, I mean, they're good. It, it's fun to watch them because, um, they're kind of salt and pepper. Iris Aton is, has long, dark hair and she dresses to the T and Drew is a blonde, blue eyed Scandinavian 
more soft-spoken, you know, more of a listener. Iris is fiery. They're fun to watch. Uh, it's fun to watch the prosecution do its thing, too, because you've got Jeff Lindsay, who comes out of El Paso County, who was with Dan May and helped on the Frazier case. You've got Mark Hurlburt. Who, Mark Hurlburt? You know Mark Hurlburt. Yeah. Yeah, Mark so he's the there. guy who charged the late Kobe Bryant with rape, a uh, crime he That's ended right. up dismissing. Yeah, and Hurlburt's got a good cold case up in, um, in uh, I think it's Frisco or Breckenridge, Alan Phillips, who um, is accused of killing two girls back way back in the 70s. But uh, Mark Hurlburt's very good in court. He's, he's calm. He has a sense of humor. He explains things well, you know. Um, Linda Stanley is the DA, and she's she does some questioning as well. She comes out of Pueblo, and they are um, they're adamant that uh, Barry Morphew is guilty, and they're not going to stop until they and, you know, the until they see him at least first degree murder after deliberation, right? The, I think so. It, yeah, it, it must so. be for the judge to be contemplating proof, evidence, presumption, grade, and holding him without a bond. Um, mm-hmm. But. Here's the thing. Even if you get to the point where you say, yeah, Barry did it, how do you prove it wasn't heat of passion? Okay, you see it's a text, uh, a bikini to a lover. He figures it out. He goes True. nuts and he kills her. That's True. arguably manslaughter and maybe second-degree murder. But if it's in the heat of passion, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know. Ex- I follow you for sure. And but that can you may change be that charge? The- when can you change that? Craig, how does that work? How, when can you go down to a lower you, charge? Yeah, when, can when, you go down to a lower charge? When, when the jury is instructed, this is, the defense will argue that second-degree murder and manslaughter are lesser-included offenses. Iris and Drew may argue, no, they don't get to try to get a compromise verdict. They need to go all or nothing. Most judges would allow those compromise verdicts. But I bet you're going to find this judge say, I do not find proof evident presumption great because even if I find and I do mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. probable cause to believe Barry Morphew uh, was involved in the killing of his wife, I don't have evidence that it was after deliberation and therefore mm-hmm. I'm going to set a bond and we're going to have a trial mm-hmm. on this case. That's what I mm-hmm. wager is going to happen. I think he's got money to get out. I, I do. You know, I mean, if it's a high bond. I bail. I think um, I think he's got money to get out, depending on on what uh, on what on whether the judge does. You know does what happened bail. to a lot of his money? It went to Drew. Well, he's paying the lawyers. It went yeah. to Drew and Iris because they're not cheap. But my God, whatever money you have, when you're on trial for first degree murder, you are going to spend it. So maybe he'll get out. Maybe he won't. They sold that house. Did they make money on that? Yeah, it was a million plus. I forgot how much. And they'd also, you know, I mean, he there was some there's some talk about Barry borrowing money from um, Gene, the father, you know, Suzanne's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, Suzanne's dad died the November after Suzanne went missing, so it was really heartbreaking. Um, I think he had cancer, but you know, he was dying, and his dying wish, you know, was to find Suzanne's killer, but. Before uh, Suzanne went missing, they borrowed some money from Gene. I want to say $100,000 or something like that to buy help buy that house, have money to put down on that house. And he willingly gave it. 
he had it. He was a nice man. Everybody loved him. Fun-loving Gene, right? Gene, who has the root beer stand. And he gave him the money, and there was a rift in the family because they were like, well, why are you giving them money? We're the ones still, you know, still in Indiana running the root beer stand and the tree Christmas tree business or whatever. And he said, well, you didn't ask. You know, so there was kind of a, a some hard feelings in the family. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of drama being played out. You know, um, Suzanne's family has not been in the courtroom. They listen on WebEx. And so it's going to be, if there is a trial, man, to, to see those two sides, that, that's one of the things that's so dramatic in a trial, as you know, to see the same people in the same room not go at each other's throats. <laughs> you know, You've seen some of those, haven't you, Craig, where you've got two sides completely. Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, tell me about that. that that's, well, that's it's just... dramatic. And for those people who say, you know, there are other things going on in the world, of course there are. But we get back to the point that when somebody is killed, for a person right. to have his life oh. taken in the blink of an eye, we don't know what mm. happened to Suzanne Morphew. Mm -hmm. If she was murdered, I hope it was quick. But her well, life is over, and for a show like 2020, so esteemed, Carol McKinley a part of it, ABC News, I defend the coverage of that murder, Jean Benet, which you and I have talked about. When a murder happens, it's okay to care about that. If you don't care about Suzanne Morphew being murdered, what do you care about? It's important you know, for society really to figure these things out, right? Yeah, and it's a great argument. You know, we've got Afghanistan happening. We've got COVID going on. And um, I think a murder like this almost becomes entertainment for people. It takes them away from their lives and the horror and the sadness in their own lives, and they can really get behind justice for Suzanne, right? right and we saw you... a lot of those people waiting outside the courtroom. They've got T-shirts made up. They have YouTube channels. They have Facebook, you know, uh, pages. It's amazing. Here's something that, that's interesting in this case, too, that you might want to talk about. Um, Suzanne, on Friday night, someone, and I think it was Suzanne, went on her own Facebook page. She reset everything and started sending out all kinds of Facebook friend requests to her brother's friends, her older brother. On the Friday night before she disappeared? Yeah. And um, a lot of people found that odd. They thought it, maybe it was Barry doing that and, and they got the days wrong. They thought it happened Saturday night and that it was Barry taking over her Facebook account. But it turns out it happens before she disappeared. And so the latest theory is that she was finding herself. He would not let her have male friends, according to people who knew her or didn't like her having a whole bunch of male friends. And she was like going, I'm going to I'm going to do what I want from now on. I'm going to I'm going to have friends from my high school and I'm going to be their Facebook friends. So that was her doing it the Friday night before she, you know. Right. But she I had, did, we last how long summer. did she carry on that affair with Mr. Liebler? And that was two, I want to say almost two years. How did they consummate the affair? Where would they do it at? Uh, well, they had, I think they met seven times. Uh, um, the first time they met was New Orleans. They went to, they both went to, he was a traveling salesman or is, he's still, he's still with the company, I think, but. Somehow they met in New Orleans. Um, they did not have sex, according to Suzanne. I think she must have told 
I don't know how we find that out. I'm not, maybe Libler told the police that or something. Um, but anyway, they, they just got to know each other and slept in the same room, but didn't consummate. And, and but that happened later. Uh, in fact, um, she went down to Florida to reconcile with her dad, I think in February of 2020. So February, March, April, May, four months before she went missing, she was in Florida. She was going to see Jeff Libler, but Barry shows up. He wants he wants to make sure, keep his thumbs on her, you know, and so he shows up in Florida. And through testimony Tuesday, we hear that he tells the sheriffs that they had sex three times a day. And it was this fantastic, wonderful reconnection between the two of them. Three times a day for how long? I don't know. A couple of days. There's a lot of talk about sex. Boy, I feel bad for the daughters, too. I, I would, that's, that's tough to hear, too. You know, what her mother was doing, what her parents were doing, what they weren't doing. I don't know. It's, he also told the sheriffs that they had a perfect night uh, Saturday the 9th going into Sunday the 10th. We had, we had a steak dinner. We had a perfect night. When I left, she, there was a lump on the bed. That's all I saw, and she was breathing softly. That was what he told sheriffs. But um, they only found one plate, one fork, one knife, and one steak missing from the pack. So if they had a wonderful steak dinner together, why was only one steak eaten, one plate, one fork, one knife? And he said, well, we shared it. And what are the odds? I mean, when I hear statements, it's so remarkable. You being in the courtroom, it is so good of you to it spend is. the time. But during the Holler trial, which we had on court TV, trying to figure out who shot Tom Holler and kidnapped Christina Holler, she had been beaten to the point of almost death, so she couldn't really testify against her attackers. But we had a bunch of circumstantial evidence. And then our case was strengthened when Stephen Harrington, one of the accused, his girlfriend, Dolores Mercado, took the stand and said, he could not have done it. He was with me in my bed that night, and we made love five times. It's like, uh, you know, the jury kind of listened yeah, to that. I crazy. ended up charging her with perjury, but at the time I thought about saying, Your Honor, I ask you to find that incredible as a matter of law. I didn't say that. I was thinking if it wasn't so serious, I would have said, Your Honor, may I approach the defendant and shake his hand? I mean... <laughs> it's just this over-the-top testimony where a jury looks at you and you look at them. And mm. I'd say when Barry Morphew says, I came to Florida, everything was great. We made love three times a day for a week. It's like, really? I don't think so. Mm. Yeah, and I think it was just a couple of days, not to correct you, All but, right. I, you know, it's not. Um, so why? What would he be trying to do if he said that everything was great and exaggerate they, they were, that things were great and mm, mm-hmm. make make it hard to believe among a long married couple that they would act like teenagers well, that's kind of what even I tell for a couple people, of days? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah, three times a day. Ah, that's uh, hard to believe. Yeah, but oh. uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. How's Barry doing in custody? Because I like your descriptions of everybody's fashion, and there were four days of preliminary hearing. Did he bring a new outfit every day, or did he have to recycle? Um, uh, He's got he's recycling suits um, and ties. He wears a nice button-down shirt. He always looks very nice. 
Um, and is he staying in shape? Is he doing push-ups while he, in jail? He looks thinner. Yeah, he looks he looks um, he looks in shape. He looks good. Um, he he um, he's very confident when he walks in. Apparently, there was a there was a request for him to be able to wear a suit during a preliminary hearing. Right, that's unusual. Know. Normally, people who are in custody yeah. have their jail uniform because you worry about yeah. that with the jury, but not with the judge. The yeah. judge knows. So why he's would in you custody. worry about that with a judge? Why? Right, you know? but you know, judges are humans too, and to see a guy in his suit, True. yeah, I mean he he um, he looks good. He there, you know. I'll tell you, he um, one when the judge was waiting, you know, when we were waiting for the judge to tell us what he was going to do, right on Tuesday at like three p.m. is when it happened. Like it, it didn't go all day. He was. He had one lawyer on either side of him. Iris on one side, Drew on the other, and he was completely bent over. I thought he was praying. Some people thought he was crying. I thought he was praying because the judge hadn't made his decision yet. And, and for um, those of us who say, gosh, if you can't decide probable cause, then what chance do they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt? But at the same time, maybe he's struggling with uh, the proof evident presumption great. And the yeah. defense attorneys were probably pissed because, hey, judge, if you're struggling with it, then you should let him out on bond right now while you struggle that's, with it. That's a great point. And I think they really want him out. They keep ta they keep acting like this man is in a cage. This man is in jail. He's innocent. He's, um, you know, he's away from his family. We need to get him out, get him out, get him out. That's their job. And that that's, that's you know, when, when he, when the judge indicated this wasn't going to happen for another three weeks. Barry Morphew's hair looked like Einstein. I mean, it was like he'd been pulling at his hair. And he walked out, and he was really uh, defeated. You could really see it. And, Gosh, you know, that's his good, reporting. good reporting by Carol McKinley. We expect nothing less. I hope we get to stay well, in thanks. touch. Someday we'll watch Craig. it on 2020, but yeah, we have yeah. to make we our have... salida now. You know what salida means in Spanish. Exit. Correct. But before we do, <laughs> That's the one word I know. <laughs> but before we do, you're not a braggart. You didn't want me to talk about all your heptathlon accomplishments, this and that. But you do list on your Twitter page Idaho Springs Yodeling Champ. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, my husband and I were in Clear Creek County at a, um, what were we doing? God, I'm trying to remember. Some kind of concert. And, um, in between, in between the rest for the band, they had the yodeling championship, and everybody was so terrible up on the stage. I looked at them and I said, "Well, I could do that." They were going, "Oh, oh, oh. I thought, oh man, I'm, I, I could try it." And so Let's um, hear it. he turned, he turned away for a minute, and next thing he knew, I was in line to get up on the stage, <laughs> and I won. I just, I just picked, picked up. Page from Santa Music, you know, hi on here, said lovely goat here, I did that. And I had everybody clap with me and I was running up and down the stage and everybody, you know, got into it. And the way they chose me is only because uh it was audience applause and the sound of the applause, and they just liked doing it with me. 
So well, I yeah, won. You put on a show and you probably sang it with it was considerable hilarious. gusto. Tell us, sing it with that gusto. <laughs> no, I just did enough. No, <laughs> that was wonderful what you gave us. I thought we'll that take was fantastic. It. I I won a parka from the from the um, from one of the um, ski ski shops downtown. They had an extra large parka left over from the season, and they said, "Here's your prize," and it would have fit you. So I. You know, I got this parka, ex- extra large parka that would fit Craig Silverman, took it home. Oh, beautiful. It but you've got a memory. Yeah, awesome. And uh, you gave us a little <laughs> yodeling. You gave us a lot of your time, Carol McKinley. We're and only human, Craig. We're only human. I know it. <laughs> but there's a great drama. And uh, I, I yeah. think it's important to follow the outcome because a human being likely got murdered, likely betrayed right. by her husband and all this infidelity. It's fasinating case, but there's a tragedy at the heart of it. Uh, poor Suzanne right. Morphew. But lucky for us, Carol yep. McKinley is our friend and reporter. She does it for ABC, and she gave us a great report on a fascinating Colorado case. Carol, thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. Bye now. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Welcome. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is Scott. Scott, Craig. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the lounge. Thanks for having me. You are the star of Crime Talk, but you're also a Marine. Terrible tragedy involving the death of 10 or more Marines. Your thoughts? 
Well, obviously, my heart goes out to all the Marines and the uh, corpsmen uh, that died there at the uh, airport. It's a tragedy. It's probably somewhat preventable. And um, hopefully uh, someone will tell the people responsible that we mean what we say, that if you harm the uh, even a, a hair and the chinny-chin-chin of an American uh, Marine soldier, sailor, that we're going to come for you. Yeah, but it becomes complicated because what level of proof do you need? I mean, fundamentally, we're talking about the same thing that you and I do for a living. We're in the criminal justice system, and this was the intentional slaughter of up to 200 people. And how far does the culpability extend? Who are the accomplices? Joe Biden said something about anybody who's rooting for that side. We're going to get you too. And wow. I I mean, it's. It, I always think that international relations and the criminal justice system, there are some commonalities, common themes like when can you defend yourself? When can you use force? I bet you've thought about that too. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, obviously, you can't go around just, uh, you know, firing on anybody. Uh, I remember when I was in the Marine, I always told everybody that, you know, you could start an international um, crisis, so to speak, if you did something stupid. And the Marine Corps could go away just like that if if you, in fact, did something. So you have to be smart about it. You can't go around just, you know, bombing people to bomb people. You want to make sure you get the right people. So it is complicated, and I understand, and, you know, I think I've talked to people that have been in the military, and they want to go get somebody. But, like I said, who do you go get at this point? Is it the Taliban sitting in, you know, the government offices, or is it this ISIS-K who's, you know, hiding in a mosque somewhere? How do you prove it, and how, how do you get them, and when? So it's, it's complicated. Right, and what is the level of proof before you push the button on the drone in your office somewhere? Do you need proof beyond reasonable doubt? And what about the other people in the vehicle? Do they matter? Yeah, I mean, and you know, I think this ISIS K organization is the one that claimed responsibility for it, but you know, I don't think they have a organizational headquarters, you know, saying here we are, come get us. That's the problem. And let me be a criminal defense attorney. Maybe that's the Taliban pretending they're ISIS-K. I mean, you can't absolutely right? No, you can't. And, uh, you know, I had a friend that was on one of the Mews that went into um, Afghanistan right after 9-11. And he he was a lawyer. And, you know, they have lawyers these days literally at the side of these commanders, you know, defining rules of engagement. Can you do this? Can you do that? It's become a complicated world that now we take lawyers to the battlefield. Right. And if you don't like this lawyer's opinion, let's get the guy from the troops five miles over. Maybe he'll give us a better one. Seems to me the Bush administration did a lot of that, but it's fascinating (laughs) the role of lawyers and the concepts of when you can pull a trigger or push a button and just kill somebody. Have you thought about that a lot? I I have because I prosecuted a lot of murder cases 
in my defense practice, I've dealt with death situations, not really defending anybody yet charged with first-degree murder, but I bet you have in all of that just the concept of one human being making the decision to end the life of another. It's really basic, and we can't tolerate that in our society, yet it happened between Cain and Abel. Talk to me about murder and how much you've thought about it. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, like you said, since the beginning of time, uh, murder has existed. And then the question becomes, is it right? Is it justified? I mean, our legal system says, obviously, you know, don't kill people. And they have various levels of, uh, you know, that crime of first degree murder, second degree, reckless, criminally negligent homicide, things along those lines. But then there's also the affirmative defenses that says it's okay if you do it under these extreme set of circumstances. And, you know, my experience defending people charged with first-degree murder is the juries usually look at what else could you have done before you did what you did? Was there any other way out before we, um, you know, find you guilty or not guilty. And usually the prosecutor says, you know, he wasn't justified in self-defense. And so that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, when it comes to pulling a trigger on somebody, I've told lots of clients over the years that I appreciate it. I understand. I like guns. I have many, many myself, but they complicate everything. Whether you just have it, whether particularly when you use it, it just gets complicated. Absolutely true. And then it comes down to what is the consequence for pulling the trigger. And I'm thinking about that because the 21-year-old amongst five suspects in a crime uh, spree in Denver that <clears throat> apparently resulted in one of them shooting to, to death, uh, Shmuel Silverberg, at the Yeshiva Taurus Chaim last week an 18-year-old seminary student, Jewish seminary student. And one of the perpetrators had been charged as an adult in Boulder County by Stan Garnett. That doesn't happen every day because he took a gun and he pointed it at a kid's head in a you know, macho incident. Hey, are you going to flinch? No? Okay. And then he shot him in the head. And then he did few years, maybe two, maybe three in Lookout Mountain, where he met these other guys who were also accused of going on this crime spree. And I'm thinking, wow, now the, the first guy did not die, but obviously was injured, severely shot in the head. And if you, you know, what is the right amount of time to punish somebody? We've taken away capital punishment, which means I'm yeah. going to be the last prosecutor in modern Denver uh, history to prosecute a death penalty to a guilty and a death verdict in Denver because even before the state said no, Beth McCann said no. So we're talking about how much jail time is enough when you shoot somebody. And I submit that I wish that guy would have still been in jail. So, um, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, those are tough questions. And, you know, um, you know, is, is is juvenile justice just a stepping stone to uh, bigger and better things, so to speak, in the adult criminal justice system? I don't know. I mean, there's lots of people say, oh, you're a youth. You can't 
make those decisions. The brain hasn't developed enough. So, you know, we're going to give you kind of a pass. But when you're committing adult offenses, it's, it's, you know, where's the right number, so to speak? Is it life? Is it death? Is it when you're going to make you so old that you can't get around and harm anybody and then we'll let you out? I mean, those are tough questions. Straight um, off the presses is the fact that Sirhan Sirhan has been recommended for parole in California. And it's been way over 50 years since he shot and killed Robert F. Kennedy in the back kitchen area of the Ambassador Hotel. I happen to be alive when that happened. It was traumatic for the country. Not long after Martin Luther King had been assassinated and RFK's brother before that, but Sirhan Sirhan, should he get out? Like he's, I mean, he's, I think, what, Sirhan Sirhan is, what, 77 years old now? Yes. 77 years old. You would hope that he probably can't get around and harm too many more people at this point. Is 50 years enough for murder? I mean, obviously... Some people say that's not enough. It's my understanding it's Robert F. Kennedy's son, RFK Jr., thinks that maybe Sirhan Sirhan wasn't even the shooter. So, But he is an anti-vaxxer, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, you know, I just don't know. It's a, um, I mean, that's, that's something that I guess society and legislators and, you know, members of Congress need to decide, you know, what is the appropriate sentence? Uh, you know, whether it's keeping the death penalty or not, um, like you said, you're, you're one of the last prosecutors to get a conviction. Didn't seem like anybody could get a conviction here, but the last, I mean, there ain't going to be yeah. no more. So, Hey, who was the last one? I'm a trivia answer. And my colleague, Mike Little has passed away. Who's the last living prosecutor in Denver, but, and I'd say records are made to be broken. If you had to bet on it, do you think the death penalty will ever come back in Colorado? I personally think it will. Um, I, I think it'll probably be something that will be referendum initiated uh, by the citizens. I think that there'll be something that will be done that will be heinous uh, where it's just pure evil and not necessarily mental health related. And I think that people will be uh, so upset and outraged by it that uh, it'll be something that'll be done by um, citizen initiative. Fascinating my, stuff to talk guess. about with R. Scott Rice, who not only is a very successful criminal defense attorney and a Marine, He's the host of Crime Talk, which is super popular on YouTube. Just check it out. I've been watching it this week, and I'm proud of you. You won a trial, a jury trial, I think, and you were also doing your show all week. That's a twofer. <laughs> well, I, I missed one day because cause we were we were just too late to uh, get something done because that's because we got a, a not guilty verdict on all counts, but. Yeah, we we try to keep keep doing a show every day, even though in trial it gets a it's pretty tough. We try to come up with something to uh, fill that time slot. Because you have so many people waiting on your every word, especially this week with the Barry Morphew trial, 
It has delivered. This is a hell of a case, isn't it? And I make no apologies, Jermaine, to what we've been talking about. If you don't care about the murder, and I do think Suzanne Morphew was murdered, if you don't care about the murder of a human being, then what do you care about? This is worth talking about and thinking about, right? Absolutely. I mean, people need justice, right? I mean, people need to know the answers. And, uh, you know, the Barry Morphew case, whether there's enough evidence to go forward, whether he did it, I mean, I don't think that Suzanne Morphew just did a gone girl and, you know, rode off in sunset and, you know, had no contact with, you know, her two daughters uh, or other family members. So I think something bad has happened to her. The question is who has done it and whether there's going to be enough evidence to convict the person that the government thinks did it, which is Barry Morphew. That's who they're alleging did it. In my 16 years as a prosecutor, I bet I had thousands of preliminary hearings. I don't recall ever losing one. I know I never had one go four days. This is unusual, and I did a lot of proof, evident, presumption, great hearings as part of first-degree murder PHs, but um, we got them done fast because you could put on hearsay, and normally judges don't want to hear that much from the other side, but that's not the Barry Morphew case. Am I right? Is In your experience, isn't this extraordinary? It is extraordinary. The fact that they blocked off four days for a preliminary hearing on a homicide case, most, I mean, I think the longest one I ever did was maybe one day. Right. Uh, because you put the detective up, he basically will regurgitate what he put in the affidavit for the arrest warrant, and that's usually sufficient to make the case go forward. Um I've only had one first-degree murder case where it wasn't bound over a preliminary hearing. The judge said, I'm fine, not on first-degree murder, but conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Uh, but I think I can count on one hand one case that I've ever had thrown out at a preliminary hearing, and it wasn't a homicide case. That's for sure. Right. It's just a screening device. Hey, do we really have the right guy here? Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a double check. But it's only probable cause. And at the end of it, you have to say, okay, Suzanne Morphew was probably murdered, and she was probably murdered by her husband, Barry Morphew. And then it comes down, but was it probably deliberate? And how do we know that? Anyway, this case has so many twists and turns. As I understand it, he's charged with murder after deliberation, correct? Correct. And so... That's the problem for the prosecution right there and maybe what the judge is struggling with because what evidence is there of deliberation? There's evidence that he might have just found out about her having an affair, maybe even with that bikini text right before she disappears. So maybe it's heat of passion. Talk to me about that, Scott. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I didn't sit through the entire uh, proceedings, but I sent uh, one of our show's producers down there to watch it, and she took copious notes. And I don't think that they have enough, in my humble opinion, for um, after deliberation. And I certainly don't think that they have uh, proof, evidence, presumption, great to hold him without setting a bond. And like you said, it was it was it heat of passion? I mean, the prosecution's theory is that somehow he must have been aware of this affair. He became upset, used some sort of animal tranquilizer to 
incapacitate her and then obviously killed her and disposed of her body. But they can't say exactly when. They have the six-hour window. They have no body. And frankly, any you know reasonable defense attorney, and he's got two very good defense attorneys, can come up with a lot of plausible explanations as to what they were doing, what he was doing, and what evidence they have and try to explain it away. So I don't think it's the strongest case. I think it'll get bound over, maybe not on first-degree murder, but um, I think the charges are not going to be dismissed for sure in their entirety, and I think he'll get a bond. It may be too high that he can't afford to make it, but I think he's going to get a bond set. All right. I almost agree with you. I do think that the judge will set a bond, although it could be extraordinarily high, which is tantamount to no bond. And I do think he'll be bound over on first-degree murder because deleting the texts and it was pretty clear that for not just the bikini picture, this was boiling up. And I I think there's enough evidence taken in the light most favorable to the prosecution for this judge to say yes on first-degree murder and probably set a bond, but it's got to set both sides to wondering and I have Carol McKinley as my reporter, and she's been in the studio. Uh, she's been in the courtroom every day, and she just did a great interview with me about a lot of the particulars. And she said Barry Morphew was extremely upset when the judge said, "We're going to wait till mid-September." On the one hand, you're saying, "Hey, if you have doubts about probable cause, then how the hell are they ever going to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt?" And then if you do have doubts about probable cause, why don't you set a bond right now for this guy instead of making him wait without a bond until September 17th? Those are the things that have to be running through Barry Morphew and the attorney's heads, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's all very reasonable and rational to to conclude. I mean, you've done preliminary hearings. How long could you ever wait for a preliminary hearing ruling uh, from a judge. They did it from the bench. They had their notes, even if he had 25 pages of notes, as this judge indicated. They they know what the elements are. They know whether they think they've presented sufficient evidence. So for the judge to wait nearly a month to organize his thoughts and his notes, and frankly, I think that's just a little unfair not only to Barry Morphew, but the prosecutors and, and the public as well that also has the right to know what the ruling is going to be. I'm not sure why he needs, you know, three to four weeks to do that. I'm fascinated by the families, and I think I'd hate it as a prosecutor, love it as a defense attorney, but if those daughters are in the courtroom and Carol told us that they are positively interacting with Barry, I love yous, and warm pseudo-air hugs, that sort of thing— it's their mother who's disappeared. They know the allegation. For them to side with their father, the jury's going to look at that and say, wow, they know these people, and if they give their father the benefit of the doubt, we need to as well. Absolutely. I've been told in the courtroom. Oh, yeah, you broke up again. Respond Oh, I'm again. sorry. Go ahead. Respond. So, so yeah, everything, um, I agree with you, and everything that I've been told by people that were in the courtroom as well was that it was clear that the, the, the daughters are clearly on Team Barry Morphew, 
They don't think that he's responsible for the death of their mother. And they, you know, they're there to support him. So a jury would have to take that into consideration. Uh, the DA may have to take that into consideration at some point as well. And if they have some, if the district attorney has some other information, they should probably let the girls know. But if this is what they've got, apparently the girls aren't buying it. And you know what the girls have that the prosecution doesn't? They have a civil cause of action against their father for the wrongful death of their mother if they believe it, but they would only have to prove it by a preponderance of the evidence. Not that he's going to have a lot of money left after hiring these criminal defense attorneys. They're good. What can you tell us about these ladies? Well, I have known uh, June Nielsen for years when she was a public defender in uh, courtroom 17 in Denver. I used to do a lot of uh, alternate defense counsel work in there. So I got to see her work. Uh, She's an excellent, excellent attorney. And when she left the public defender's office, she went into private practice and has had several significant uh, verdicts of not guilty on some very high-profile homicide cases. Her law partner, Iris Itan, once again, a former public defender, very skilled trial attorney, uh, very, very smart. And I think it's very clear that they have come out swinging on behalf of their client, Barry Morphew, and their intent was to win this case at preliminary hearing. I know Iris and Drew. They are impressive. I know Iris a little better. What about the prosecution? There's a familiar name, Mark Hurlbert. What do you make of that team? I, I don't know much about the elected DA. Obviously, Mark Hurlbert was around for the uh, Kobe Bryant case up yeah, in that was that was fiasco. <laughs> I mean, you can fiasco. try to spin it, and my my buddy George Brockler does a little bit, and I've I've never had Mark Herbert in Craig's Lawyers Lounge. It's been closed, but I was a critic of that prosecution. I had sat through that preliminary hearing up in Eagle. That was quite an experience, and I thought the case was falling apart, and it did. And when a case falls apart like that, you have to wonder. As a prosecutor, which Mark Hurlburt was, the elected DA up there, did I just do a bad thing? Did I just tarnish Kobe Bryant with a rape charge that I couldn't prove? Isn't this a case that could have, I could have taken my time and not caused the international incident when I ended up putting my tail between my legs? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, Craig, you're a former prosecutor. You know is a is a the extreme power that a prosecutor has. And, you know, when they file charges, they're affecting people's lives, their reputation, putting their liberty at stake. You have to be pretty certain that this is the person that did it. And if that case does start to fall apart, you know, they have an ethical obligation to say, you know what, maybe things weren't exactly the way we thought they were going to come out. So we need to do the right thing. And whether that's dismissed or make an appropriate plea bargain, it's something they should do. But and yeah, you, Mark need Herbert, use, you need yeah. to use a little common sense. Okay, it's Kobe Bryant. He's being accused of a rape. Maybe we have a good case. Maybe we don't. Maybe time will tell certain things. If we let him go, are we going to be able to find him again? Yeah, I think you will be able to find Kobe Bryant. And so that's what I'm talking about. And once in a row, look at in the Morphew case, 
What, they take over a year to arrest him? Because that's quite a step to take. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they waited a year, and although circumstantial evidence is viewed in the light as the same as direct evidence, there's a lot of, well, this had to happen, and then this had to happen. It really makes uh, the case less... uh, I'm I'm sorry. No, that's right. It makes the case... I mean, it just makes the case less winnable and less likely to have occurred when so many things have to have just fallen into place in the prosecution's timeline, as they're alleging in this particular case with Barry Morphew. And so I think, I just think if this is what they've got, I just think it's going to be a tough, tough uh, sell to any jury. I'm thinking he's good for the murder. I do. I think he probably killed his wife. And I base that on the circumstantial evidence, which to me is pretty overwhelming. And you might object if I make this argument that, you know, what are the odds of this guy following an elk herd at three in the morning? What are the odds of him putting his phone in airplane mode? What are the odds of him making four trash stops? What are the odds of that being the day that his wife disappears? What are the odds of him not interacting with his wife and the mother of his two kids on Mother's Day. What are the odds? What are the odds? And at a point, you got to say, you know, what are the odds? And then you put those fractions together. At some point, you might draw an objection, but really, don't you think he probably did it? Well, as I stated when we first started talking, I don't think that Suzanne Morphew did a gone girl. I don't think she ran away with her uh, new newfound uh, romance Mr. Something bad happened to her. Yes, Mr. Libley. I truly believe something bad has happened to her. And obviously, the husband, the last person, by his own words, stated was the one that saw her last, uh, may have had something to do with it. The question is, is the prosecution going to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the question. Right. And then in the civil justice system, can anybody prove it by a preponderance of the evidence? But the only people with the cause of action would be Suzanne's children, I do believe. So the families are lined up. You're lined up to cover it. Tell everybody what they can expect from crime talk when it comes to the Barry Morphew case. And what what other cases do you, do you cover on a regular basis? Well, we, we're, we're covering the uh, Barry Morphew case. We'll try to be there when the judge issues uh, his ruling on the uh, preliminary hearing, whether they find probable cause or not. We are following the uh, case out in Idaho, which is the uh, Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell case, where all of the uh, uh, Lori Vallow's children uh, disappeared and they were ultimately found deceased in uh, the yard of Chad Daybell who his wife just happened to pass away unexpectedly. Um, and then two weeks later, he married Lori Vallow. What are the odds? Um, Again, that's what, what I'm are saying. The what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? And of course, you know, Lori Vallow's brother killed her uh, previous ex-husband. And so lots, lots of cases going on there. And then we have the case down in Colorado Springs of Letitia Stout, who um, is charged with the death of uh, her stepson. And so that case is actually set for a preliminary hearing uh, in September. So is, we'll that the one with, to... is that the one with some QAnon associations? 
Uh, that I'm not aware of. All this right. is uh, Gannon Stauk. He is he was uh, eight years old. His father was on military assignments and disappeared. And um, the uh, young boy's body was found in Florida. But Letitia Stauk, the stepmother, has come up with uh, 30 different reasons as to uh, what happened to the missing boy. And uh, none of them make sense. She was comped uh, twice by her attorneys. She ultimately got rid of the public defenders. And now she has... uh, court-appointed counsel as well. But uh, the case has been delayed for over a year because of uh, some pretrial wrangling. And uh, she tried to escape when they were extraditing her back from South Carolina. And she was plotting her escape while she was in the El Paso County Jail as well. And we've got COVID. I mean, it's so messed up the courts. How did you do your jury trial? With masks on or off? What jurisdiction? Yeah, this was in Arapahoe County, and we all wore masks and but the jury was in the jury box and uh, we just kind of did it like a normal trial with with masks but what about the witness did the witness take the mask off the judge ordered that the witnesses had to remove their masks when testifying unless counsel had approached with an exhibit then they could put them back on Uh, but i think that's important for the jury to be able to see the witness's face you know to judge their credibility Right, but what if the juror's wearing glasses and the mask fogs up his glasses? Anyway, there are so many complications. You won, you don't have to worry about it, but if you lose a case in criminal court anymore, do you say, hey, it's not fair, we're not getting a regular jury pool, older people are staying away, this, that, the other, because of COVID? You know, it's it's interesting. I've done, I think, uh, about six trials since the COVID protocol started. And whenever we ask juries whether, you know, they're concerned about COVID, I've only ever seen one juror stand up and say, I'm here because I want to do my civic duty, but I'm really concerned about COVID. Everybody else has said, man, I'm not really worried about it, um, and I want to do my civic duty. I was somewhat surprised, but that's kind of been the trend. Well, that's amazing. I I'm starting to get addicted to crime talk. I've become a subscriber. I urge other people who like to follow criminal cases to follow Scott Rice. She's been good enough to come back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge two weeks running, but we knew that we wanted to talk about Barry Morphew, and I I also knew that Afghanistan wasn't going to get better, and I knew you are a Marine, and I'm so sorry what happened. Let's end on a little lighter note, if it can be, in a murder case, have you thought about why this case and not others get more attention? One, these are pretty people, right? Barry Morphew and Suzanne Morphew. And isn't that kind of a Dickensian name? Charles Dickens would name a guy Barry Morphew. It's kind of a contradiction. You want more or few? You know, it's, I just think it's an yeah. interesting name, Morphew, and then. And Salida, that's an interesting jurisdiction with, you know, means exit in Spanish. I think about these things. Why do you think a certain case catches fire and others don't? You know, that's something we think about here when we do our show literally every day is what are the stories that people are going to like? And 
the things that people really want more of is, uh, and I, I think he's hit the nail on the head, is when uh, pretty people get in trouble. Uh, if you look at the Lori Vallow, you know, she's relatively attractive. Uh, her now husband, uh, Chad Daybell, same thing. Then you've got the Morphews down at Salida, pretty attractive couple, middle-aged, you know, everybody wonders, wow, my marriage isn't great. Could the guy sleeping, you know, the, my partner sleeping next to me, you know, could they whack me kind of thing? Uh, maybe that's too simplistic, but I think it's something that intrigues everybody and they wonder, do I really know my partner anymore? And with the spy pen in the Morphew case and it picks up him listening to podcasts like maybe yours, maybe mine, or some other true crime podcast, there are so many of them, and he even was listening to one about a woman who disappeared on a bike, this trial is going to be great. I think there will be a trial. I agree. I think there's going to be a trial. I think it's going to be interesting. And I think it's going to be a knockdown drag out trial uh, because there's a lot, there's a lot of competent attorneys in that courtroom on both sides. And I guess I've mentioned before, who doesn't like to see good lawyering by both sides? Now I did not ask you about the judge, judge Murphy. We talked about his deliberation style, which is unusual, but this is being heard by a new district court judge Right there, you don't always have a district court judge hearing a preliminary hearing, but they can. And what's your philosophy as a practicing lawyer about judges? Do you talk about it candidly or do you say like I do? I'm not going to rip a sitting judge. I I practice in Colorado. So we always try to be careful when we talk about the judiciary. We don't want to say anything that's going to get anybody in trouble, particularly me. In fact, there were lots of people broadcasting the Barry Morphew uh, hearing several weeks ago when they were on WebEx, and I was like, you can't do that, and I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to get in trouble. But when it comes to judges saying, gee, I think it's unusual. Why would they take three to four weeks to come up with reviewing their notes? They have an idea. They know whether the prosecution has submitted sufficient evidence with a very low standard to make the case go forward. That seems to me to be a little indecisive, which is not something you want from a you know, trial court judge. Bold statement. Now, with your success on YouTube, um, you're walking in two worlds. I have some experience. Are you part of the media? You're certainly a lawyer, but, for example, well, your organization, your show with all your new employees and all that, you guys, are. do you consider yourself part of the media? Now, do you, are you applying for press cr- uh, credentials and all of that? Well, I think it's something we're going to have to consider doing, whether it's uh, press credentials as well as being able to ask for expanded media coverage. I think that's something that we're probably going to have to do because I'm a true believer that uh, the public has a right to know. I think it's good when the uh, public can see what takes place in the courtrooms and not just the high profile cases, but the everyday uh, mundane, so to speak, uh, cases that go through the court. Um, I think everybody acts a little differently when the cameras are on, but I think they act a little differently for the better uh, when they know that they're being watched and everybody's, for lack of a better term, on their best behavior. And maybe they show up and do a better job whether it's prosecution or defense, because they know the cameras are on. 
Well, I know one lawyer who's comfortable in front of the camera and said, Scott Rice, you can watch him every night on YouTube, Crime Talk. Thanks a lot for coming back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And let's stay in touch about Barry Morphew and all the other good cases going on. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Troubadour, Craig, Dave Gunders. Everybody knows you, but you are our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Greetings and good day. Hello, Craig. We had a walk on Thursday. I enjoyed it. My dog, Skylar, and Iko enjoyed it. And Riley, the dog you call your son, he enjoyed it, but you brought Heidi. And I don't know how you determined whether or not to bring Heidi. You usually do not. Tell everybody about Heidi and why you hide that dog. Heidi's a pretty good soul, but understand that my 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 true loyalty is to the son. Right, but Heidi appreciated the walk, and you might not have known it, but Thursday was National Dog Day. I didn't know. Well, now you know, and uh, a good time was had by all, and frequently we sing songs of our youth because our mothers sang to us. Yes. Like that Red Red Robin song. Yes, and Kay said ah. Right. Right. I thought of another one that my mom always sang, and I'm betting that your mom sang it too. All right. How much is that dog <laughs> in the window? Arf, arf. The one with the waggle tail. Am I right? Arf. That's for dog day. Anyway, thanks for singing along we, and barking at me. We treated our dogs well. Yes, every day we do. I love this song that you have this week, which is about a son, not your son, but a son. And it's a frequent part of all your songs, and that is the orb in the sky, be it a moon or a sun. But have you noticed that about yourself? Well, you've pointed it out in the past. I have, yes. And you assume that role of wise narrator, and I like that. Okay. And how would you characterize this song? Country, folk, what would it be? Oh, um, wow. I usually don't worry about that. But, um, yeah, it's not a it's, – it's a, it's a very uh, uh, peaceful kind of song. It's, it's a ballad of sorts. Oh, it's amazing. The words are incredible, but it's a, a road trip song too. Yes. And what do you mean by road trip song? I think any song that feels good, you know, as you as you when you hit the road, usually it's a song about freedom, you know, adventure. I love this, but I'm not sure this song fits because it starts with the harsh realities of what's going on, sending you a message straight from the wreckage or words to that effect, and it's amazing, but. Before we leave the road trip thing and talk about things a little heavier, did you ever have a convertible? I did. I sure did. 1967 GTO, my first car. I had a Chevy Supersport. My mom 
passed it along to me, and it was a beautiful thing. Ain't nothing like riding in a convertible, especially if it's your own, right? The Chevy SSs were really nice, Craig. I used to shut them down all the time. Oh, boy. You and your GTO. That song uh, is out there, too. (laughs) But nobody's singing much this week because of Afghanistan. It's heavy on our minds. And I think you have another perfect song. You and I take a walk, and I brought this up. Because hopefully we'll get to the other side, but some of your lines in here, Troubadour, are just, I'd say your first six lines, that you're crying for the nation, you're calling from the wreckage, can anybody hear? It really, you pick it up at the end, as you always do with your optimistic outlook, but these are terrible days for our country right now. Our nation is crying. It's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, and I mean, and that's that. And I wrote the song in, you know, it was a it, um, kind of a description of some of the pain we were going through. This was pre-Afghanistan exit. This was more during the pandemic, but uh, but it was. It also reflects the, some, you know, the polarity that that's happening, just the madness in the world. Right, but you have your wise narrator, and how is the madness in the world affecting us, and what is the danger? And you answered it it in your song with a word that I've been thinking a lot about, and that is you're crying for the nation because what could happen? If you give in to hatred, you're finished. Right. That word hate, I don't know that I've ever heard that word or a variation on it in uh, any of your songs. No, probably not. No. What I say is if you get, you give in to hate, you lose it all. It's, it's something that, uh, you know, we have to remind ourselves it's so easy to hate whatever opposite side is, you know, is in front of you, whether it's the anti-vaxxers or a different political party. Um, it's, not a, it's not a good thing for anyone. No, it's terrible. And it can destroy you. It can eat you up. But in my profession, you know what hate leads to and what it leads to internationally? Violence. Violence. Killing a person. The act of homicide. And we know to survive, we can't keep killing each other. It's It's an imperative, but we're on the verge of doing that as we give in to hatred. And let's take it out of Afghanistan. This week's show is about Barry Morphew, who is accused of killing his wife, Suzanne, who turned up missing... Mother's Day before last, and the allegation is that she was having an affair. He discovers it, and what does that lead to? Hatred, a feeling of betrayal. Is it a motive for murder? Well, it is for some people, and uh, just thinking about giving into hatred on a personal level, on a national level, it can be destructive. True enough. Yeah. What's that? Have you noticed these Taliban assholes who have taken charge? They get interviewed and they say, well, everybody's going to be safe. And they have weapons. You'd think they're Lauren Boebert or something. They always have to have the big weapons in the picture. And they say, well, how are you feeling now? They're like, we're really happy because we just beat, you know, a superpower, America, and they're in charge. But when they're saying that, they don't look happy. You know, they never smile, and that's the back half of your song, is where's the smile? You want to talk about the opposite of hate? You can't hate with a smile on your face, and you're 
metaphors around smiles and the sun. Talk about that. Well, at the end, you know, I, I did want to, to uh, bring out the idea that we have to move forward out of the struggle, out of the madness, out of the hate. And in this particular case, this gets back to our road trip. He's, he's, uh, he's with his, his love and he looks at her and, and, and she smiles and he says, you know, he, he, as long as there's a sun still shining, basically we can, we can move forward in life. And, and that's, that's the, the point of the song, moving forward, appreciating, like I said, the preciousness of life. Let's give it a listen. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders. As sun still shining. Sending out a message, crawling from the wreckage. Anybody left gonna take this car? Train leaving the station, crying for the nation. Giving in to hate, you lose it all. Life goes by in the blink of an eye. A little ray of light, a little patch of blue sky, bringing me everything worth knowing. My head in the clouds, I'm dreaming out loud. I'm turning from the crowd, I keep on going. As long as there's a sun still shining We're heading out of town Baby got the top down Open road anywhere is fine Wind in your head And seeing you there I leave all the madness behind Find some peace for a little while When you smile I know that there's a sun Still shining Reality shifting Darkness lifted Knowing your love Is here Fine Maybe there's sun
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. And there you have it. I told you that's a great song. As Sun Still Shining by our troubadour Dave Gunders. Thanks to him. Thanks to Scott Reich for the rare return trip. One week after another to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And I think you understand why. It's a good vehicle to talk and think about Barry Morphew and the concept of murder. And all it entails, Carol McKinley cannot thank you enough. She was in the courtroom. ABC pays her, and we get the scoop. Love that. Love you guys listening. I hope you have a good week. Be well. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.